such an eloquent, uh, eloquent com uh, delivery. Yeah, delivery. That, yes, great. That was the best I ever heard. I don't know if it could ever ever be repeated. No, properly. probably not. And I'm not going to try it. We're just going to tell the folks that are listening to the broadcast that that this we're dealing with Colossians chapter four. We're getting to the uh, uh, getting near the end of the chapter. We uh, we've just started actually near the end of near the end of the book. We're in chapter four, verses two through six today. And we're talking about the power of, of, of speech, the power of words. And uh, what I'm amazed at is that it, it's almost as though Paul is almost using um, uh, some sort of an automatic weapon. You know, in these words, he just, just starts shooting off a, a variety of things. And he doesn't give us a lot of depth to him. He just expects us to kind of pick up on the information that he's given us. As an example, let's just read this in chapter in chapter uh, four, verses two through six, it just simply says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in change. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the ways, in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. All right, that's the, the passage we're dealing with. And we're going to take a look at, at what happens. Notice that there's a, a variety of things that were said. In, when it comes to prayer, one of the first things that we're told is to, is to be watchful. This means to be mentally alert. Um, it reminds me of a passage... Uh, in um, in First Thessalonians chapter five, where it says, "So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert. Let us be self-controlled. Uh, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and for those who get drunk, uh, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet." Sounds similar to Ephesians, doesn't it? And in, in we talk about the, ar the army or the armor of God. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. All right. So we're told to be, told to be watchful, to, to be understanding that we need to be careful about that. By the way, in this next part, um, uh, it says to be uh, being watchful and thankful. The, the, the literal way that you would probably describe this is to be watchful in thankfulness. And, and there's a reason why I want to emphasize this. The word that we get here, the word for thanksgiving or to be thankful, is the term that we use today in certain churches when they talk about communion and they call it Eucharist. Eucharist means to be watchful in our thankfulness. Think about it from this perspective. We're told to be thankful for what God has provided for us. We're told to be watchful. And I would say that in, if, when we partake of communion or, and or Eucharist, as depending on how we want to describe it, that we need to be not only thankful for what Christ has done, but watchful for the fact that he's promised that he will return. You ever think about that when you're taking communion? He promises he will return. He says he will not eat again until he's returned. And he takes us to have a huge feast, which I believe is the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
I'm looking forward to that day. I'm also looking forward to the day that I can actually go to a, a banquet and go to a place where there's lots and lots of food. And I don't ever have to worry about, about ready for this. I don't have to ever worry about gaining weight. <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? Be cool. Yeah, we're pretty cool. All right. So we need to be thankful. We need to have an attitude of thankfulness in all that we do. Uh, prayer and worship are perhaps the highest uh, uses of the gift of speech that God's given us. And we're told to be faithful, to continue in prayer, to be steadfast in your prayer life, to be devoted, to don't quit, to keep doing it. Uh, it reminds me of 1 Thessalonians 5.17 where it says to what pray without ceasing. Now, does that mean that we're supposed to go around muttering all the time? Muttering prayers underneath our breath? Is that kind of what we're supposed to do? No. There's a lot of silence here all of a sudden. James, you're going to say something. Well, it, it just means that we should find opportunity to pray and, yeah. um, in, in all things. And not necessarily muttering, but in our heads or if we find a, a uh, secluded spot that we can pray, or even if we're on public transportation. So it doesn't really matter, but in all things, pray. I think, yeah, I think that's a good, uh, it's a good attitude to have. I think the whole idea of just having an attitude of prayer, that I can go to him at any time. As soon as I, there's an, a situation, and I cannot tell you how often I for, fail to do that. It's like, oh, oh, yeah, I need to pray. It's like it's the last thing I think about versus the first thing I think about. You know, I think so often the problem is we pray when we're in a crisis mode, but we don't pray when we're not in crisis. Amen. And God wants us to do that all the time. By the way, do you think that that uh, that the reason that we're told to pray continually or, or pray without ceasing is that, that we have to bug God to get him to answer our prayers. You think that if we just, you know, if, if we, if we uh, assault him enough with our, our words, that he'll finally give in to our, our demands. No, it's to keep your focus. Keep us focused. Your perspective is so interesting. What, what, what was that, Edwin? Your perspective is so interesting. Well, thank you. I just uh, <laughs> put it in there. It, you know, do we, is the whole purpose of praying without ceasing to wear God down? You know, if I said, okay, fine, you can go ahead and do it. It's a discipline. It's a, oh, it's a discipline. Oh, okay. I, here I thought I was just wearing them down. <laughs> it's a, a, a Wi Fi connection. It's a Wi Fi. Okay. All right. All right. I think it's a great distraction from the world. You, you think you know, praying is a distraction from the world? Okay, that's yeah, an interesting you're praying way to God, and well, yeah, it's kind of the opposite. You know, we we you know the world distracts us from God, so when we pray, I think we are distracted from the world. Yeah, you get all your problems. I, that's what that tilia was. Basically, the prayer shawl was the way it's constructed. You're supposed to throw it over your head, mm -hmm. which kind of creates a atmosphere of you just you're completely thinking of Him. Yeah. Nothing is coming into it. Nothing is leaves your yeah. um, portable prayer closet. Yeah, that's why they always give the Israeli yeah. soldiers a tallit when they go to battle. Mm -hmm. no. I, I believe like consistently praying allows you to get closer with God. 
And there are days where my prayers, I think, are more routine, where some days I feel I have a connection. And by mm -hmm. ceasing or continuing to pray, uh, you, you, at times, I just think you, you, you have a better connection um, and focus. Yeah. Um, uh, at least that's what I find in my walk. I think it's uh, like talking with a good friend. And when you get talking about something that's very important, you can't shut up about it. And you keep the, but he's, but you feel he's and your great friend is willing to listen. And, and he'll, he'll let you go all day. So it's okay. <laughs> he usually wants to break in, just make a point, and then he'll, he'll let you go back to your rant, right, Rick? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so yeah, I think God enjoys answering our prayers. I think God enjoys answering our prayers, but he sometimes delays the answer, I think, to increase our faith, increase, increase our devotion, and to accomplish his purposes at his right time, not at our right time. Someone once said that God's delays are not always God's denials. Mm -hmm. I think God enjoys our companionship oh, yeah. rather I, I than... Mean, Rather than us enjoying his companionship, I you think, think he enjoys we, it more than we enjoy his. You better believe it. First of all, in the Old Testament, it says there is a jealous God, number mm -hmm. one, and there is a reason for it. You know, because he he did everything for us, and they went the wrong way. He he rescued us, and he blesses us, mm -hmm. despite our own uh, undoings so it's not a ter terrible request to have a companionship with God aside from asking him to do this to do that to supply for this to supply for that he it's a uh, just think about uh, George I think he talked about the shawl um, with a group I have two or three groups that I'm studying Bible um, we went through where the apostles were walking and the shadow was touching somebody and they were healed. Mm -hmm. uh, some people might not believe that this could happen today. Some people, I'm saying, I don't know. I I'm not going to put my hands and say, God, don't do it. Because God is omnipotent. He can do whatever he wants. And when he does, he does for our good and others. So... I think uh, father wants to have a relationship with his kids rather yeah. than the other way around. Yeah, it kind of reminds me, it kind of reminds me of uh, uh, when we talk about Enoch, you know, yeah. in, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament in, in Genesis, does Enoch walk with God? And he was not because God took him. And I think um, I've always envisioned that maybe like, the, like, Adam and Eve, and I could be wrong on this, but I, I kind of think it's cool today. Adam and, you know, Enoch and God are walking along, talking, having a conversation. And each time they get to the end of the walk and they end up back at Enoch's house, you know. And then one day Enoch and God are walking along and God says to Enoch, you know, we're a little closer to my place than your place. Why don't you just come on home with me? Hmm. Yeah. And, and and he did. You know, I, I, I don't know if that's... If, if that's just my telling a story or if that's the way it actually happened. But man, wouldn't it be interesting to have 
be able to walk around, just talk with God, just tell him about things that are on your mind, you know, ask his advice, just oh, saying, yeah. when was the last time uh, I asked for his, his advice? I'm always well, asking him to fix things, but it seems like it takes me a while to get around to saying, hey, what, what do you think? Yeah. You know, in, in Luke, uh, Christ tells us that we should always pray and not give up, and then he, he gives us the parable about the woman that continually prays. Yes. Is that because she's going to wear him down? Yeah, but basically, you know, Christ says that God will, God will hear us and listen to us, and how much better will he treat us than this judge? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, I've come to believe that there's no power in dull and listless prayers because if there's no fire on the altar, the incense can't rise to God. We're, we're, prayers described as incense that's put on the altar. In fact, you look in Revelation, we won't take the time to look there. We look in Revelation, look up the golden altar and look at the fact that there are bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints that are put on the altar. And, um, and, and the picture there is that the, the sacrifices that are put on the altar are often considered a prayer that goes up to God. In fact, in Psalm 141, verse 2, this says this, May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. If there's no fire on the altar, I'm going to tell you this, the incense ain't going to burn. You know? And so when we when we don't when we approach God with dull and listlessness in our prayers, if there isn't spiritual energy and alertness in what we're doing, I'm wondering sometimes if the problem is that routine prayers are the ones that are unanswered. And I'm as guilty as the next guy. You know, I get time for dinner, for lunch, whatever. I say a word, I say a word of Thanksgiving. I say a word of blessing over the, uh, sometimes it's routine. It's the same set of words over and over again yeah. without really thinking about what I've done, without really concentrating on what I've said. And I think that those go sometimes go unanswered. So we're told to do, uh, we're told to be watchful. We're told to be, to do this continuously. We're told to do it with Thanksgiving uh, and, and then with purpose with purpose, uh, praying also for us, Colossians uh, 4.3. Too often, I think too often our prayers are vague and general. Lord, bless the missionaries. What does that mean? Does that really help? Do, do, do we acknowledge what the issue is that we're looking for him to pray? Or is it because we just don't know? And if we don't know, is it because we've not drilled down and asked questions? We've not read, maybe if it's a missionary, maybe we've not read their, their prayer sheet, you know, or their report that they're, they're sending us. Um, you know, perhaps our lack of faith causes us to pray generally instead <coughs> of specifically. Because we don't expect God to really answer. Okay. So, someone said, "Is why be a Christian then?" What's that? I go then. I I guess the (laughs) it takes away the whole purpose of your whole walk. Yeah. Um. It 
it's contrary to the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing comes by the word of God. Um, it's a sense, I'll go back to say, and when you're constantly praying, it's a sense of uh, discipline. It, it might be repetitious at times that Matthew 6 talks about, but it's a consistency of understanding of, of issues where you're at. And I, and I believe this, the Holy Spirit brings stuff to you to sometimes pray on. Mm-hmm. Let's take, for instance, a missionary. You're praying for a certain missionary because you're called to or you're sending money to or whatever the situation is. Um, uh, but I think a young Christian may start off in generalization in prayer and then will focus down more as he grows or Indeed. she grows. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of the fact that there have been times when I have had no idea uh, no earthly idea why I'm praying for someone. There have been times <laughs> that's I've, true. Yeah, I've I've woken up in the middle of the night and just felt compelled to pray for somebody. Uh, there have been times when I when I've been in India, don't know a thing about what this person needs, but I'm asked to pray for people, and they come up to us at the end of a service. And you're praying over them, and you're just saying, "God, you know, me, the Holy Spirit, speaking to my heart and my, me to my mind as to what I need to pray for them about." I can remember doing this in Sicily. We were at, uh, uh, we were in Syracuse with uh, Giuseppe at um, Oh Carmelo's church, and uh, you know, I, there was a whole movement of the Spirit that one particular night, and. You know, I'm Giuseppe or uh, uh, Carmelo, the pastor, asked me to to pray over. He's telling me to pray over the people. I don't know what they need. I, I'm I don't speak you know Italian very well at all, and, and basically not at all. And uh, and so he's motioned for me to pray over all these people, each individual. So I did. But I had no idea for sure what, I, but I just pr- prayed and said, you know, in some cases you're asked the Holy Spirit to just speak for you because you don't have the words or you don't know what it is you're praying for. But I think the problem is so often we think that prayer is the idea of, of trying to get God to do our will on earth as we want him to do our will in heaven. And what's that, uh, that thing we call the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer? Your will be done, not ours, but his will be done on earth. We'll help here as it is in heaven. <laughs> we, we need to be praying according to his will. First, first John 5 says uh, in verses 14 and 15, it says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us, Whatever we ask, we know that he will, we will have what we ask of him. As we read God's word, as we fellowship with God, as we spend time with him, as we discover his will and then boldly ask for him to do what he planned to do anyhow, Archbishop Bishop of Dublin, uh, Richard Trench, back in 1880, said this, Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, it's laying hold of his willingness. 
All right. Notice that uh, one of the other things that Paul asks for is he asks for the that uh, that he would have the power to proclaim God's word, the mystery of Christ. The mystery involves God's purpose for the Gentiles in relation to Israel and for in the church, the Jews and Gentiles are now one. This is what, he, this is what he's hoping to, even though some believing Jews were, were bigoted and, and wanted to force Gentiles into a lower position. You know, there's an extreme legalistic party that wanted Gentiles to literally become Jews before they could become Christians. And Paul fought against that. Even though he was a Jew. I think so often today, if um, I'm reminded of, of, of Richard Warmbrand, who, who wanted to carry the message of, of the gospel to the people of Romania and eventually to the people he also did it to the people of, of Russia. You know how he did that? First of all, he was told that if he, if he preached again, when he was released from prison, the one time he was released from prison, he said, they were told, don't ever, don't ever preach again in, God's, in, in the name of Christ. The, that very night, he went out and preached in God's name and was <laughs> being, being tracked by the secret, the secret police, rearrested, thrown back in prison, decided that his purpose, one of his purposes for being in jail was to help reach, he was going to reach the Russian people for Christ. You know how he did it? In prison. One soldier at a time. There were Russian soldiers in the prison. Oh, yeah. Is that what it was? Was it Russian or was it, was it Romanian or Russian? Or? Well, he was in Romania. But oh. somehow or other, there were Russian soldiers that were being put, brought in and taken out. They were being rotated in and out. Hmm. And so he had an opportunity okay. to lead Russian soldiers oh. to the Lord, send them back to to, to Russia. Hmm. Right, because uh, they were one of the countries that Russia had their control over. Yeah, big time, big kind of control. Think about you know, that. It's, it's funny, though. It's it's like now, you, it, so like the, the old communist regimes, there seemed to be the... Uh, going back to orthodoxy, you know, kind of or Christianity, you know, where, where we've taken a step back, maybe, maybe we're going forward again, who knows, but uh, yeah, it seems like they've, they've done, they've gone first full circle. It's, it's amazing what happens when we allow God to do his work. Just allow him to do his work. He'll change hearts and lives. You want to change, you want to change our country, change the hearts of the people. Amen. You know, I, I'm amazed at what God does when we just allow him to, and when we get out of his way and allow him to do his work. Yeah, I was going to say that, that he'll get it done regardless. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he'd like us to help, but <clears throat> free will. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in, in, a, couple of, in, a, in a couple of pages here, but uh, I was just going to mention to you, um, I have a Spurgeon was pr considered the prince of Baptist preachers. He had thousands and thousands and thousands of people that attended his his uh, services, and uh, he had, he had a, a number of churches that he preached at. But he built a tabernacle in London. It's called Spurgeon's Tabernacle, 
I got to to go buy it one time when I was in in London years and years ago. I have a friend who actually has preached there. At one time, it was a it had a huge amount of people. When he was there, they were just starting to regrow. They had gone from from like fifty people in that place to you know to over a thousand um, over the course of several years that they got a they got a good preacher in, and somebody who truly loved God and was trying to minister to the people. But when Spurgeon was there, he used to he he would take people on tours from time to time, you know, and they'd say and he'd say to me, "You want to see the the powerhouse of this ministry?" And th- he would take them down into a lower auditorium basically into the basement and he would show them here here is where we get our power there's an empty room they were i don't know if they were thinking it would be a coal furnace or what it would be back in the days this is late 1800s he said uh, this here is where we get our power for while i'm preaching upstairs hundreds of my people are in this room praying hmm. yep. in fact when i was when i was pastoring out in st louis uh I had a member of our church come up to me and say, can we pray while you're, while the service is going on? We want to do what Spurgeon did. And so there are a group of people that prayed for me every sermon that I preached when I was there at Grace. Uh, they, they prayed in a separate room uh, and prayed for the enti- during the entire service that God's spirit would move in, ha- in the hearts and yeah. lives of people. That's amazing. That's where power comes from. And don't ever tell your pastor, well, at least the least thing I can do is pray for you. It's the most important thing. It ought to be the first thing we do for people. And so proclaiming the word of God is a great privilege, but it's also a tremendous responsibility. By the way, you don't have to be an ordained pastor. You don't have to be a missionary to share God's word. You just have to be a Christian. So, so Val. Yeah. Tell me. <clears throat> doing a little bit of time here. Um, you earlier you said pray specifically, and then now what you just described seemed to be praying generally. Well, you say generally, but I think what they were praying for is that you know we we would give them a list of things. They would give they would I would give them my notes, and so they'd be praying oh. over the various points of the notes. They'd be praying for people's hearts to be turned and for people's hearts to be touched for certain people, for the salvation of certain people that were there in the services, uh, that they would come to know Christ. Uh, they were they were very specific prayers, but they were not necessary. In some cases, whatever God laid on their hearts, too. But they tried to be very specific in their prayers. But you're right. There is a... Billy Graham, yeah, did, Billy Graham did the same thing at all his uh, um, uh, events, his crusades and stuff. He had people in the background that were... Uh, doing the same thing, praying the entire, the entire service, and yep. um, people that there's one woman that just followed around from crusade to crusade because she felt it was her, that was how, you know, God was calling her. You know, she would, she didn't even, uh, they didn't even know she was doing that until years later, but she would follow from crusade to crusade uh, and uh, join in the prayer. Uh, uh, to pray for the the people. Yeah. And the Orient's got a group at Kensington. I, I think I've mentioned it before, the Orient. Uh, before Wednesday night services, um, 
they have 24 hours of prayer every Tuesday, starting at 6 p.m. on Tuesday. They have uh, uh, time slots available for people to uh, join in and pray, you know, and uh, they do it for 24 hours before the Wednesday evening services. That's awesome, isn't it? So do, do our prayers change what God does or influence his direction? Or are we saying it's mainly just communication for us about his will? Well, that's a, that's a good question. I think God relents, relents sometime. Yeah, I was going to say, in the Old Testament, there are times when God relents because people have prayed. That's Amos. You can read in the book of Amos. Yep. And uh, remember, he changes mind too. Not because he has to, but because this is your art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think a lot of times, you know, he, he sets down a particular path that he's going to go, and it's because of our rebellion and our sinfulness. And as we change our hearts, to conform to his, he changes what he's going to do. Well, promises he'll answer. Lot the same way. If there are fifty peoples, would you not stop until if there is ten, until there is one or zero or whatever? Yeah, Abraham (laughs) Abraham negotiates with God, which I just love. Yeah, Yeah. if there's fifty righteous people. How about 20? Five? 10? Yeah. Yeah. The worst thing is, think about it, there's not even that many. Right. What kind of an impact has Lot had in that that town? Not much. Of course, we don't know how long he had been there. All right. So when Paul prays, uh, he says to devote devote yourselves to prayer. And I think... Paul, Paul asks for some very specific things. One, he, he, pray, he requests that they pray for an open door for the gospel in, in, in 4 verse 3. He's, he's always looking for ways to communicate the gospel. And uh, no one has better skills to turn any situation around as an opportunity to witness than, than Paul, with the possible exception of my good friend Giuseppe. I've seen him do things that just... I go, where in the world did that come from? But Giuseppe has, I, I believe, has one of the, his gifts is the gift of evangelism. And um, he, he, but Paul says, pray for an open door for us to be able to, to provide the, a gospel witness. His success was because he looked to the Lord to supply wisdom for the opportunity. And he asked that they pray that they would get that he would have that open door. Then number two, he says he prayed in his petition in verse four. He says, "Pray that I pro- may proclaim it clearly as I should." He's asking for the ability to walk through doors that are wide open, and he, he uses the the term "proclaim" is the way it's translated. I think in the in the uh, yeah, in verse four, it really has it carries with it the idea of uh, the word could be translated manifest, and it says to or to reveal what has been hidden, which he talks about, which makes sense because he's talking about the mystery of Christ. What is the mystery that he wants to do? He wants to reveal the hidden mystery, and so he's asking for 
that that he'll have the ability to do it well, that it's understood, that it's not confusing. He says, uh, and then then he says uh, another request. He says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Paul Paul uh, talks about now wise conduct. Um, he wanted the, the Colossians to know wisdom and he asks that they would live in wisdom. Uh, you know, one of the passages says that, I think it's a parallel passage in Ephesians 5 says the days are evil. Paul's problem, Paul's concern, excuse me, was for non-Christians response to the gospel and the attitude of Christians towards them. And, uh, he says to make the most of every opportunity. Does that mean that all you do is just that? That you ignore everything else in life? You're just always looking, always talking about the gospel? No, it, it, in the Greek, the way it's it's constructed, there's this, it's to make the most of is a uh, a subordinate to the previous verb, which is be wise. So be wise in the way you act, making the most of what, how you act. Uh, the idea of make the most is uh, is an active verb in the in the um, is active in, in the Greek. It carries with the idea of buying back, to make the most of the time that's there. In other words, make sure that you make either the time that you have count for God. Make sure that you, you make time for God. Uh, you know, one of the pro potential problems we run into is uh, in, when we witness to the lost is that we come away with a sense of we're better than them. You know, it's an attitude, I think, I don't know that we actually say it, but we certainly act like it at times because we've been redeemed and we know that we're going to heaven. So therefore we're better we're better than the person that we're witnessing to. And I'm not sure that that works too well, unless you're also dealing with somebody who's uh, looking to, to be uh, um, arrogant and proud. Um, I think we sometimes have a superiority complex. I don't think that's intentional. I think that's how it comes across to, to the other side. But I don't think so. Like, like, Jay Vernon McGee told the story. There was somebody uh, complaining to him about that, about the church up the street and how they thought they were better than everyone else. And he went on for a little bit. And Jay Vernon said, "You know," he said, uh, "I have I happen to know those people," and he said, "They they actually feel quite the opposite." He said, "The reason that they go to that church is they know that they are not better and they needed a savior." And he went on in that direction. And uh, the guy had a Cheerio for a mouth, he said. I think sometimes the problem is we've got to be careful about how we present the gospel. And and we also have to be careful. About, you know, it's like when the if it, some of us have been in other churches where the pastors always seem to be on a pedestal as though they could do no wrong. You know, as, as though they were perfect. And they had it all put together. And I think that that can turn people off because, first of all, you're wondering, is that really true of that person's life? 
and frankly, you all know that I'm a, I'm a screw up. So, you know, it's just the way I am. Uh, I get some of it right and I get a lot of it wrong from time to time, but God's gracious in spite of, in spite of me, or maybe not because of me, certainly in spite of me, he's gracious. And so we need to make sure that we have the responsibility to witness to those around us to seek to make them, uh, to bring them into God's family. <clears throat> you know, um, we need to walk honestly. We need to walk in wisdom. We need to walk honestly. First Thessalonians 4.12 says, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Uh, I remember a story of a, a fellow who was telling me that uh, he wouldn't sell to certain churches because they were terrible at paying their bills. <laughs> he stopped selling to churches because they were, they were, you know, it was always my intent if when, when I, when I was involved in paying, making sure we got, we had to pay our, our, out of our budget. If a bill came in, I wanted it cleared within the first week. I wanted to pay it. I wanted to have a good reputation with the, with the people in the community that we paid our bills. We paid them on time. And, and, you know, fortunately I never, I never went without a payday. But I told him at the beginning, I said, if, if it comes down to paying a bill or paying me, pay the bill. Because I want to make sure that we have a witness in this community that says, oh, they're that, those Christians, they never pay their bills. Yeah. You know, or they pay their, they don't pay their bills on time. Because I want to have a witness. No, I'm not done yet. So, um, it's not simply uh, enough to walk wisely and carefully before believers, but we also must talk to them in a way that we share the gospel and talk to them in wisdom. And may it be, may it be controlled by grace. Oh, sometimes I'm wondering, you know, Lord Jesus said uh, that he, when he spoke, he always spoke with grace on his lips. Even when he was in the midst of pronouncing the woes of the Pharisees, he, I think he did it with the lips. Of grace. Uh, Psalm 45 verse 2 says, grace is poured into, uh, into your lips. Um, in uh, Luke 4, the Lord Jesus was uh, described as, uh, and all wondered at the gracious words that proceeded from his mouth. Um, we Ephesians 4 tells us we're to be ministers of grace to those that hear us. I am I have I'm appalled sometimes by just how poorly our conversation is with believers and with non-believers alike. Um, Paul says we need to speak the truth in love, and too often what I've seen is we speak in truth in anger. Mm. And, you know, we might not agree on everything. We might not agree on, where, on, on all sorts of different things, but we can do so in a courteous way. We can do so without 
you know, to the point of not losing our temper. Yeah, but yet, yeah. Paul, Paul, when he spoke to the high priest, remember, remember that episode? Uh, I don't think God, he lost his might you, you whitewashed something. So yeah, whitewashed up sure yeah. if he needed to be. It didn't mean he was. Uh, but I don't think he said it in anger. Toast. Which well, is he different. Might, he might have been strident, but he not wasn't necessarily angry. Yeah. And sometimes you have to speak with a certain amount of emphasis that, depending on the individual, may appear to be anger, but it's just a different way of getting a point across. My wife often tells me that I have an angry voice, and I've told her, you've never really heard me angry. I might streak stridently at times, but I've, ne I, I've rarely lost my temper with my wife. Yeah, that, that's what I immediately went to when, you, you know, you, you in, you're trying to interpret someone's intent and even if you ask them what their intent is are you angry and they say no yeah. do you really believe that they're not angry well are they shouting it when they say no depends on who you're asking i suppose and how yeah, usually the one you love the most will have the one that will be the you know so you're saying the one that loves you the most lies no <laughs> Because if you ask them if they're angry and they say no and they are, then they've lied, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. We don't want to go down that road too far. Okay. I, I see that red button, red, red dot on the uh, upper left-hand corner there. I am so. recording. I am recording. All right. Thanks for your humor, Matt. So we are told to, to when we speak, to speak with salt. What's that mean? What is salt? What was salt used for in the first century? Improve uh, taste. Improve taste. So it's a, it's a seasoner. Preservative. Preservative. Okay. What else? Tenderizer. Tenderizer. Okay. It's considered a. It's it's considered something that would. Um, I can't think of the word right now. Um, but it, it, it can use be used for cleaning and for purifying. The, uh, the uh, NLT says, uh, let your conversation be gracious and attractive. Yeah. Doesn't mention salt. Well, it's because they, again, used their, their uh, latitude to not use the word salt in there. All right. Yeah. Uh, what That's does the what? message say, Rick? <laughs> <laughs> Well, and then you got to remember that at the time that these books were put together, conversation meant something different than it does today. And uh, mm -hmm. we look at we look at most things that we read in the Bible using uh, the parlance or the um, definitions that we see today, and not what was used. Um, I don't know, 16th century or whatever, when the Bibles were uh, put together as we have them today. Okay. So do you not agree with their choice of words there, attractive versus salty? <laughs> uh, I think salt does a lot of things that more than that. Uh, and I, I would, I would, say that I think you need to expand on that a little bit. Yeah, I would go back to the Greek 
I think attractive is okay. I think it's more than that. I think it's deeper than that. Um, you know, I think we need to uh, salt, much like light, can have an effect on people. You know, my wife, I believe that when when you use salt at the table, you ought to sing jingle bells um, and sprinkle it while you're singing. But uh, that's just me. Um, my wife doesn't use a lot of salt. She says it makes her hands swollen and, you know, but um, salt is important. It was an important part of life and it was an important way of, of preserving life and preserving food. Additionally, one last thing that salt was used for was sacrifices. Mm. Leviticus uh, 2 uh, verse 13 talks about that. Makes salt sense. was added sacrifice. So is it possible that our words are to be offered to God as a sacrifice, uh, just as our words of praise are uh, our spiritual sacrifices? Could it be that our words of, that we speak in general could be sacrifices? If they're seasoned with salt, what would it be like if we were ready and willing to give an answer to every person of the hope that lies within us? And we're going to have to stop there because I, I'm, we're just right, I, make it. I got to get my uh, my message one in. Okay, yeah, because it's ahead. really interesting, Rick. Just a, just a moment. Just a moment. I think, just... I, hey, Rick. I think uh, I think this might turn some people to uh, listening to the message more. I, I of course. The, <laughs> uh, just a, just a little bit. Uh, uh, let your speech always be with gracious charm, seasoned with the salt of wit, which I think is a little different, than, so that you will know the right answer to give in every case. Uh, okay. So I thought the salt of wit was pretty good because that's pretty much you, Val. Oh, is that what it is? Okay. <laughs> See, there is a, I keep telling you guys that sarcasm is a spiritual gift. Exactly. <laughs> That's what they're saying. It's in the Bible. <laughs> My wife constantly reminds me how much she appreciates that wit. <laughs> she does, huh? She she appreciates your wit. <laughs> no. Don't you think at least for me, any pastor that I've gone to see that didn't have a little bit of wit or something not right. <laughs> oh, brother. Well, you, you know, you have to look again at Saul as to having a great deal of value because of his very many uses uh, at that time. And even even today, uh, some of you guys are, uh, are uh, woodsmen or hunters or whatever. And, uh, you know, what would happen to uh, your game or whatever if there wasn't some salt applied at some time? Yeah, it's good. In the day. You know, when I was in India, uh, one of the times I was in India, we were walking uh, back from the marketplace, and uh, my uh, Naveen, who's uh, many, some of you know, is one of the is like Jaya's number two guy. He and I were walking, and he uh, he walks alongside this guy. He's got a bike. He's got this great big burlap bag that's uh, it's huge, and it's uh, sitting on the back of his bike. And Naveen reaches in and pulls out stuff and hands it to me and it's salt mm. and the next thing i know naveen's eating the salt you know and I, I don't know if this guy was selling salt at the market and and you know i don't know if it was a pinch or a dash or a handful <laughs> <that Naveen laughs> took, but whatever he took 
took out some salt and walked along the street and was eating salt. And I thought, well, that's kind of an interesting way of. How's his blood pressure? <laughs> you know, my brother, my brother-in-law takes uh, medicine for blood pressure, keep it down. But recently he's been having problems with it going too low. Too low. And I keep telling him that there's a simple way of solving it. You don't even have to go back to the doctor. Just take some salt. <laughs> take care of it. <laughs> hey, you know, what do I know? Of course, I'm apparently well, not the right kind though. of doctor for that. So, anyhow, listen, guys, this has been a, a, a good talk, I hope.